Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellaro. And this week, my guest is cosmologist at Fermilab, Dr. Dan Hooper. Dan, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, for the listeners, Dr. Dan Hooper is a senior scientist and head of the Theoretical Astrophysics Group at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Illinois. He is also a professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. He holds a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Wisconsin. His research focuses on the interface between particle physics and cosmology. He's especially interested in questions about dark matter, supersymmetry, neutrinos, extra dimensions, and cosmic rays. We'll get into that in the later part of the show. But Dan, as always, I like to ask physicists and scientists about how they got interested in science. It's always a fascinating story to hear. What about your early years growing up? What were the things that turned you on to science and physics and got you into into college as a as a aspirational scientist? Yeah, so my uh, story is a little longer and meandering than most. Um, if you ask a random colleague of mine, they'll tell you some story about how when they were six or seven years old, something something happened and they learned about physics and they knew from that point on they wanted to do physics. I don't think I had any idea what physics was or that it was a job or that it was you know something I was interested in until much, much later. Um, I grew up in a small town in, in, in Minnesota, rural Minnesota, and uh, I didn't have any known examples of, of scientists to, uh, to template on. So, uh, you know, I went to college to be a musician, not to... Uh, not, and not not to do anything like science. And I, I knew I was good at math, but I had never taken much interest in science at that point in my life. That's actually but very I, interesting because a lot of scientists are adept at mathematics and music. The connection is obvious. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly clear why that is, but it's it's undeniably um, it's kind of a, one of these curiosities that we contemplate every once in a while. Um, but yeah, in college, I, I, I lost interest in in. in formal music training i still play music to this day but um oh, i try to do you play well I, I play a lot of things but uh guitar is what i'm good at um i i can play you know most instruments a little but uh guitar i play oh, pretty well for the astrophysics parties playing the guitar <laughs> <laughs> occasionally occasionally oh cool but uh yeah i mean I, I tried a bunch of different stuff in college i took some classes in history and economics and engineering and and uh but as part of the engineering program i had to take a, a one quarter class in modern physics and in that class i learned about relativity and i learned oh, about yeah. mechanics and uh those were the two most interesting things i had ever encountered in my life relativity and, will do you in i mean, it really it's will. mesmerizing <laughs> do you think you understand what your world's like and you don't know about relativity you you don't have a clue you have no idea what's coming and you start studying so, albert einstein you start studying trains on railroad tracks and thought experiments uh-huh. All that good stuff. Yeah. The curvature of space and time, time dilation, length contraction, all that all that wild stuff. And and uh suddenly I became interested in physics and I became a good student for the first time in my life. I'd never been good at you know, particularly interested in school prior to that. I never studied very hard and but suddenly I was mesmerized and all I wanted to do was learn more physics and I did pretty well ever since then. So this was your bachelor's degree? Yeah, that's right. Did you move right on to your PhD afterwards? Uh, I did. Um, in fact, I was so enthusiastic, I didn't even wait for the for the term to start. I showed up in in, in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was going to do graduate work. Um, instead of waiting till September when everyone else showed up, I showed up in May and started early uh, doing research. 
What brought you to Wisconsin? Because uh, in my mind, it's not noted as one of the big astronomy schools like Indiana University or Harvard or, or Caltech. I mean, it's a pretty good place. Um, it's, you know, it's not in the top 10, but it's somewhere in the top 20, I would say. And um, the fact is, with my background coming from, you know, the small state school in Minnesota and, and uh, you know, I was pretty behind the game. If oh. I had gone to Harvard or Princeton, um, I, you know, I'm not sure I would have been able to catch up there. Maybe I would have, but I'm not sure. So Wisconsin was a really good fit for me. I came in a little behind and I left, uh, you know, ahead. So um, those four years I spent there really uh, were, were just about perfectly suited for what I needed at the time. That's an interesting story because often there are young scientists who just breeze straight through. But for many, it's a question of fits and starts, you know, finding the right school, finding the right thesis advisor catching up on your mathematics, you know, kind of floundering around and filling in the gaps for a while and building your educational infrastructure. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues, you know, will, will tell you that, you know, they, they went to pretty much elite schools their entire life. You know, their, their preschool, their kindergarten, their first, second, 12th grade, whatever, the undergraduate, all of it were in great educational opportunities where they were constantly enriched and challenged and everything. And, um, yeah, that's not my story. Um, you know, the, I, the, there was really no appreciable science training where I grew up. Um, you know, when people talk about the math they learned in ninth grade, that's what I learned in 12th grade. You know, it was, you, you know, it was a different, different sort of situation. Did you grapple with mathematics? Because relativity will take you into tensors real quick. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like, like a lot of physicists, I, uh, I found that so challenging when I learned it. But, uh, you know, I was good enough at math and uh, hardworking enough that I could, I, could, I could learn what I needed to learn mathematically. Um, but math's, math's always been a tool for me. It's always been a, a means to an end. I'm more, much more interested in understanding the universe than I am about the uh, mathematical relationships we use as tools. So did you, like many uh, uh, PhD students, do a postdoc assignment? Mm -hmm. I did two postdocs. My first postdoc was at Oxford in England. I lived there for a couple of years, and that was great. Um, I had a lot of, lot of good uh, collaborations there. I learned a lot of stuff that I, I didn't know beforehand. And how, then, how did um, you manage to land that? Um, you know, as you are in your last year of your PhD, you send out applications to a lot of places, um, and I got a couple of offers and Oxford was the one I thought was best. So cool. I took it. Um, Very cool. but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's super competitive when we have job openings in my group now for postdocs, you know, we get between a hundred and 200 applicants each time for each job. So, I mean, you have to be pretty exceptional to land them, but, um, but yeah, the, the jobs exist and you just kind of apply everywhere and, uh, Hope, hopefully you get something good. And if your record is good and, and you're, you know, you've really climbed to the top of the heap, you can, you can, uh, you can land some pretty good, uh, you know, inc uh, exciting employment. While you were at Oxford, did you ever have a chance to meet Stephen Hawking? Uh, so he's at Cambridge, but um, I did meet him once when I visited Cambridge. Did he give a presentation you went to or something like that? Uh, I gave a presentation and he was in part of it. Oh, no, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, here's the thing. Everybody thinks that, like, when you encounter a legend like, like Hawking, that he knows everything and, and, and whatever. And, and, and the fact is he knows or knew before he died an awful lot about a lot of things. But nobody knows 
everything about everything. So if I, you know, my talk happened to be in something that he hadn't worked on, so I'm sure he could have learned something from it. Um, and that's not that's not me bragging. That's just the, the reality of, of of how it works. You know, it's the, the fields of science are so hyper specialized that you don't ha- even if you're the single most brilliant person in the world, you can find any number of talks or papers or whatever that you can learn from. What took you to Fermilab? Yeah, so after uh, leaving uh, Oxford, and, and these postdocs are, are intrinsically uh, temporary jobs. They're not the, not the typical job where if you do well, you get to stay there. They're intended to be kind of extensions of your PhD, and you usually spend you know, two or three years in a place and then move on to somewhere else. So I did that, and, uh, and I had a couple different good offers, and, but the Fermilab was the one I was excited about the most. So I moved to Chicago and uh, started in the theoretical astrophysics group there. And a couple of years after that, um, they did a search for a permanent member, and I applied, and I got the job. So I've been there ever since. When you went to Fermilab, um, is that one word or two, Fermi? Um, Fermilab is one word, but it's short for the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Right, right. Did they hire you to do some specific research? Did they have something in mind from your resume? Not at all. I mean, I mean, they knew what kind of stuff I, I worked on, and they hoped that I would work on stuff you know, kind of in that sphere. But um, no, I mean, no, no one's ever told me, Dan, you need to like go and calculate this or you need to write a paper on that. I'm given pretty, pretty much free reign to think about what I think is important. Oh, awesome. and, and, and a lot of scientists have that kind of uh, flexibility and it's, it's for the best. I mean, if, if someone told me what to do, um, probably my, the quality of my research would go down. Interesting. So for the listeners, uh, just briefly, uh, tell us what the Fermi National Accelerator Lab does in Illinois in general before we get so, into what you do. Yeah, so Fermilab's been around for just over 50 years. Um, it's, uh, for the most part, a particle physics laboratory, um, and uh, a lot of that involves particle accelerators and particle colliders. So for a long time, we had the world's most powerful particle accelerator. We called it, or a particle collider, I should say, the, the Tevatron. Um, we collided protons and antiprotons together at nearly the speed of light. And in the 90s, we discovered the top quark there with the heaviest known elementary particle. And, uh, you know, this, that continued uh, for a long time after that. Um, but we retired the Tevatron uh, when the Large Hadron Collider really started to pick up speed. We, you know, that's an even bigger, more powerful machine. Um, so these days, we're focusing on particles called neutrinos. So we are, among other things, we create uh, beams of neutrinos, and we can send these beams through the Earth. Um, and because of the curvature of the Earth, they'll come out on other sides of the Earth. And usually we, we direct these at detectors and deep underground mines where we can study those neutrinos and learn about how they propagate and how they, uh, how they what we call oscillate as they travel through oh, space. Oh, isn't there one in Italy? I think I really uh, yeah, that. yeah. There's a big underground lab, the Gran Sasso Lab in Italy. Uh, one in Minnesota called uh, the, the Sudan Mine. There's one in South Dakota, which uh, is, is going to be very important to Fermi Lab's future, called the Homestake Homestake Mine. Uh, yeah, uh, underground laboratories are a big part of uh, modern particle physics. I remember there was a scandal a few years ago where the scientists in Italy thought that they had detected neutrinos traveling faster than the speed of light. Did I get that I right? Mean, I wouldn't call it a scandal, an honest mistake. But, um, <laughs> okay. 
let, let's say this. Um, most of my colleagues, when we saw that paper, didn't believe it for a second. <laughs> uh, we were very, very skeptical that that could be true. Yeah, I think it was just a technical error. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do specifically now at uh, Fermilab? And do you use a supercomputer? Do you have a big one like Oak Ridge? So um, Fermilab certainly has a lot of high-performance computing. Um, and I occasionally uh, submit jobs to that, meaning, you know, code to run certain specific uh, tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, but no notable but, national supercomputer like Sierra or Summit. No, I don't need anything like that very often. Um, but, you know, basically I, I tend to, you know, I might run something on 100 cores or something. That's about as big of a, a computing task I would ever run into so far. Now, some of my colleagues, um, you know, are much more computationally intensive and uh, they, they benefit from much more substantial computing. Uh, but then that's not my, my uh, cup of tea. I mean, most of my computing I do on my laptop. Um, yeah, we are promised I uh, asked you about that before the show. Uh, your laptop is a MacBook Pro, maybe? It's even a MacBook Air. And it does, that oh, does wow. everything I needed to do, um, or at least most of what I needed to do. Um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, a few years ago, I started having some back problems, so I tried to find ways to make my, uh, my work back uh, a little lighter, and uh, switching from a MacBook Pro to an Air was one of those decisions. <laughs> What kind of codes or uh, things that you do you run on the MacBook Air? Yeah, I mean, it's always different. Um, just today, I'm working on a code to calculate how a population of very small black holes might have evolved in the early universe. So this includes how they might uh, accrete matter from the surrounding plasma. It, it includes how they might merge with each other and then spiral, uh, or, or become captured in, in spiral and merge. And it includes how they might evaporate, which is something that Stephen Hawking predicted uh, many decades ago. So that's an example of something I just worked on today on a computing uh, direction. All right, so um, Dan, what uh, tool do you use on your MacBook Air for computation? Is it perhaps Python? Well, some of my uh, colleagues would make fun of me for this, but uh, but I'm pretty old school in my computing tools, uh, whereas most of my colleagues will use something like Python, like you said, or maybe Mathematica, among other things. Um, I use old school Fortran. You know, it's what I learned back in college. And oh, don't feel ashamed. It's a great, <laughs> great tool. It's super powerful, and I can I know it well enough that I can make it do basically anything I want it to do. So one of your interests um, in your uh, website says that you are interested in the interface between particle physics and cosmology. These are two vastly different realms. One's quantum mechanics and one's grand-scale cosmology and general relativity. How do these two fields relate to each other? Well, if you go back to the early universe in particular... Um, all of space was filled with a hot plasma of all of the known forms of matter and probably other forms of matter that we don't know about yet. So if you want to know, for example, what the universe was like a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, you need to know about things like Higgs bosons and top quarks and so on and so forth. So as a particle physicist, I understand the laws of physics that dictate these sorts of forms of matter and energy. And um, I try to understand how things may have played out in such a way to explain various kinds of puzzles that we're facing, like how dark matter was created or how matter came to uh, dominate over antimatter in our universe, things like this. 
Okay, well, we're going to have to take a break now. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with cosmologist Dr. Dan Hooper of Fermilab. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back on chatting with astrophysicist slash cosmologist Dr. Dan Hooper at Fermilab in University of Chicago. So, hey, John. Um, next, one of your interests is thinking about dark matter. Dark matter is a fascinating topic. We can probably spend a whole show on that, but... Just give us a kind of a 10,000-meter view. What is dark matter? Why are we looking for it? And have we found it in our local region? Well, so when astronomers and cosmologists look at the sky, they can do things like essentially weigh galaxies. They can look at how fast stars move around galaxies and deduce how much mass they have. And when we do that, we find that most of the mass can't be accounted for by things like stars and gas and dust. But it's something else, something that doesn't appreciably radiate, reflect, or absorb light. We also see evidence for this matter in larger structures that we call galaxy clusters. We uh, see evidence for dark matter in the light that was left over from the Big Bang called the cosmic microwave background. Everywhere we look and in, in, uh, all the patterns of structure we see in our universe, everywhere we look, we see the indications that most of the matter in our universe is not made of atoms or anything else we understand, but something else, something we, for the lack of a better name, call dark matter. But just because we can name it doesn't mean we understand it, and we don't understand. We don't know what dark matter is. Um, How much of the universe like, is dark matter? In terms of the matter, all the matter in the universe, it's about five-sixths is dark. Um, wow. And in terms of the total energy, so I'm including things like radiation, neutrinos, and dark energy now, um, it's uh, you know 20 per, 20-something percent is dark matter. Is there any holdout? Are there any – is there still a camp – that thinks that dark matter may be a manifestation of some oddball of general relativity, gravitational mm. thing that we don't understand and it's not actually consisting of particles? Or have we gotten there, beyond that? There, there are very few professional scientists who will say they think that's likely. There are a lot of us who will say, well, we should stay open-minded and whatever. But we are also aware of the fact that um, – you know, dark matter explains too many different seemingly unrelated things 
Um, and the various versions of modifications to gravity haven't been able to do that. And people have really tried hard to make it work, but mm. it just doesn't seem to do the trick. Um, there are a, a very small number of people, professional scientists, who do actively advocate for that. But, you know, there, there's this very short list. Have we found any dark matter in the solar neighborhood? Well, we can tell gravitationally that, you know, in the surrounding few thousand light years, there seems to be dark matter. Um, but more specifically, like in the solar system, no, we, we can't tell whether there's dark matter here or not. We have every reason to think there would be, but we can't tell. It's is just, that because uh, it's the not, Earth is too small a sample or the solar system is too small to develop so, an idea about an aggregate or, or what? The, the main problem is this. So the way we usually tell the dark matter is there is through its gravity. And the solar system, kind of by definition, happens to contain a big, massive star. So looking for dark matter, a little bit of dark matter next to a big, massive star is kind of like looking for uh. a really faint signal of light next to a giant, overpowering light bulb. You know, the, 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 the sun just kind of covers up any opportunity we might have had to detect some dark matter. That explains a lot. Yes. All right. Next. What is the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope? So the Fermi Telescope is one of my favorite um, astronomical instruments. It's a satellite-based gamma ray detector. It's been in orbit for more than a decade now. So when gamma rays are essentially photons of light, particles of light, but with a great deal of energy. So when one of those gamma rays hits its detector, that detector can tell you what direction it comes from and how much energy it carries. Approximately. Can you focus gamma rays or are they not susceptible to the normal lens type of arrangements to do focusing? Yeah, although we call this thing a telescope, it doesn't look like the kind of lenses and mirrors that you might be picturing with a telescope. Uh, you don't really tell the, the gamma ray where to go or anything like, oh, uh, like okay. with lenses. But um, the, basically what it does is there's a, a sequence of these layers made of silicon and tungsten. And when that, that photon, the gamma ray hits the thing, it actually produces an electron and a positron. And those particles then penetrate through that series of, of strips of uh, or layers of silicon and tungsten, um, each time leaving uh, evidence of their trail. So we can kind of reproduce the direction those particles came from. Ah, uh, okay. That was my next question. All right. Very cool. So why are we interested in looking at gamma rays? Yeah. So, you know, different gamma ray astronomers will tell you they're interested for different reasons, but I'm primarily interested in gamma ray astronomy because uh, it's a good way to test certain kinds of theories of dark matter. So, um, really? for example, really? yeah, indeed. So um, a lot of our favorite theories for what dark matter might be um, predict that when you put enough dark matter in one place at one time, those particles will interact among themselves and destroy themselves converting their energy into uh, energetic particles like gamma rays. But wait, but wait, we don't even know what kinds of particles they are. Aren't there about six candidates for what kind they are? Um, there are lots of candidates. I'd say a lot more than six. Uh, but many of our best guesses, our favorite candidates, do the sort of thing I'm describing. Not oh, all of them. Okay. Not okay. all of them. But um, look at it this way. Um, gamma ray telescopes provide us a way to find out if some of these guesses of ours are good or not. Um, that that's kind of the way I would approach a problem like this. Well, dark matter is only uh, visible through its effects gravitationally, right? 
so but far. When, but when the particles, as you say, collide, it dumps the gamma ray back into the normal visible space and light? Yeah, at least in some of our theories, um, this happens. So uh-huh. um, you could have indiv- individual particles of dark matter might be stable on their own, but if you get two of them to interact, they can be destroyed and in their place will appear energetic forms of ordinary matter, including gamma rays. So if we saw a bright signal of gamma rays coming from places where there's a lot of dark matter, and those gamma rays had certain kinds of features that we can predict with our theories, you could confirm uh, that you were, in fact, detecting evidence of those dark matter particles interacting. Well, that brings up my next question. I want to go into a subroutine here. We turn quickly. Um, why are there clumps of dark matter that would be more concentrated than other places? If yes, all, all, all a story of, of gravity, right? So we know that the universe was pretty uniform in density shortly after the Big Bang. But if there was one place that was even just slightly higher density than other places, um, then that should start to contract under the influence of its own gravity. So as the universe evolves – the dark matter forms a bunch of dense clumps, and then those dense clumps uh, attract through its gravity uh, things like atoms that then ultimately go on to form galaxies. So in this way, the dark is matter it, kind of forms a scaffolding that is, would end up – Is dark yeah. matter essential for the formation of galaxies? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the universe we see around us in terms of the galaxies and galaxy clusters and things like this would not exist if not for dark matter. Interesting. Interesting. Very cool. All right. Well, we're starting to run out of time a little bit. I have just one more question for you about that. Um, sure. So you were interested in um, neutrinos. What role do neutrinos play in the study of cosmology and dark matter, if any? So neutrinos play a, a kind of unique role in our universe's history. Um, we understand the characteristics of neutrinos quite well, so we can calculate how many should have been produced shortly after the Big Bang, and it's quite a lot. And they have a measurable impact on how our universe has expanded and on the patterns of light that we see uh, from the first few hundred thousand years after our universe's history. By looking at that light, we can try to do things like measuring how many neutrinos are present, how much mass these particles have, and even some exotic things about how they might have interacted in ways that we currently don't know yet. So cosmology provides a great laboratory for us to study neutrinos, and neutrinos provide a a new window um, in addition to light um, by which we can study our very young universe. Let me ask you a crazy theory. It just came into my mind. All right. All right. So I don't have any scientific prep for this. I'm just going to throw it out at you. Does the study of neutrinos give us insight into the nature of inflation? Just um, Not anything super obvious comes to mind. The reason right. being – Just wondering. So just wondering. Inflation took place very, very early in our universe's history. And any neutrinos that would have been around around the time that that was finishing would have just kind of interacted repeatedly with the thermal bath, the, oh, the, the plasma of energy and, and matter that existed at that time, kind of erasing all the information they might have carried. So um, I, I'm not saying that there's no way to connect neutrinos to inflation, but it's not the most obvious pairing. Okay. I was just a crackpot theory. Just <laughs> <laughs> so you've written a couple of books. Um, yeah. And your latest book is At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of the Universe's First Seconds. 
for those who are technically uh, astute and inclined but not really clued in on this, how do we look so far back in time and study the first few minutes or seconds of the universe? How do we do that? Well, so we have very powerful ways to directly measure most of our universe's history. We can measure how space has expanded over the last several billion years. We can see galaxies back to as early as a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. We can study the light that was released 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So from that point on, we've got it all pretty much wrapped up, at least in the big picture. Going back earlier, um, when the universe was in its first seconds and minutes, the whole universe was so hot that nuclear fusion could go on. Our whole universe was essentially a big fusion reactor. And under those conditions, we can calculate how much of various kinds of nuclear elements would have been formed, like helium and lithium and beryllium, deuterium. And we can compare those predictions to uh, the amounts of those substances in our universe today. And lo and behold, they match. So that tells us that Basically, we understand how our universe has expanded and evolved from a few seconds after the Big Bang up to the present. What kind of instruments do we use to look at that light? Is is the James Webb telescope designed to do that because it's in the infrared? Well, James Webb will tell us a lot of things. They'll be able to, in particular, measure um, uh, the, the very earliest stars that formed after the Big Bang, maybe in the first hundred or so million years after yeah, the Big Bang. Yeah, how, do um, go, how do we go back to the plasma? Yeah, yeah. So the the James Webb is not going to get us any closer to the plasma, I'm afraid. Um, to, to if we want to go back into the has to be microwaves. Huh? I mean, the, even those only get us to uh, 380,000 years. Uh-huh. Um, the, the universe was highly opaque prior to that. So what do we do? Well, we don't actually look at the universe in its first second. We try to recreate the conditions of, of uh, our universe in its first second in laboratories, like at the Large Hadron Collider. So in, this, in the Large Hadron Collider, we collide protons together with so much energy that we basically study the kinds of collisions that were taking place a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So we, we can't actually see the universe then, but we can find out what the laws of physics that it followed under those conditions and then use that information to do our best uh, educated guess to, to figure out um, what our universe was like and how it may have evolved in that very, very formative, important era. Is this the essence of the book, or does it have a larger scope? Um, well, you know, the, the book covers a lot of ground. Um, it, on one hand, I spend a lot of time telling you the things that we really do know and how we know them about the Big Bang. And then um, we go into uh, the more speculative era, that first second, and I tell you where the standard picture comes from, things like the Large Hadron Collider and our extrapolations of our equations backward in time. And then I tell you that I'm not really sure that picture is right. I say things like um, as we uh, you know, study the various lingering problems like dark matter and inflation that have already come up, we find that there are good reasons to think that that first fraction of a second after the Big Bang might have played out differently than the textbooks currently say. I think it's uh, you know, really good to, at this moment in time to be particularly open-minded about that first fraction of a second. It would surprise me if in the long run that era of cosmic history play, it turns out to have played out the way that we currently imagine. All right. Well, with that, we're going to have to bring it to a close. Well, thanks, John. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. 
Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Dan Hooper Astro. Um, and, uh, you know, if uh, you have any comments about the book at the edge of time, you can always uh, just feel free to drop me an email, too. You can find my email address pretty easily online. It's just a simple Google search, so I just won't say it here. I think that's going to bring us to a close. Thank you very much for joining me on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Folks, I've been chatting with astrophysicist, cosmologist, Dr. Dan Hooper at the Fermi National Laboratory Accelerator. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.